Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. Bridget Legault leads the Rainforest Alberta movement in Calgary as the community manager and also serves the startup community through strategy and growth consulting services. She is passionate about growing the tech sector upon a culture of trust, diversity and collaboration and activates this work through strategic ecosystem initiatives, learning experiences, storytelling and community engagement. I'll pass the mic to Bridget for her second episode in the Women in Alberta Tech series featuring Alita Tate. Take it away, Bridget. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast supported by Rainforest Alberta. My name is Bridget Legault, and I am the community manager for Rainforest down in Calgary. Uh, We'll get to our guest in just a moment. I just want to give a little bit of context of this series we are running on the Libby podcast called Women in Alberta Tech. And so, uh, again, a bit more context. Uh, It's 2023. We had the theme of International Women's Day week and month around embracing equity. And as many know, the Rainforest hosts a great meetup every Wednesday at lunch called Lunch Without Lunch. And on International Women's Day, we hosted a conversation around women's experience in the tech sector. It was a very vulnerable, honest conversation about where women's equity is at in our in our ecosystem. And we decided that we need to carry this conversation on. So uh, this is another in this series. And today I am joined by Alita Tate from Cherry Health. Welcome, Alita. Thank you very much. Thanks for being with us today. So your title at Cherry right now, Director of Growth and Partnerships, correct? Correct. Right on. I know you've had a bit of time spent in the world of HR as well. And so we'll get to your career path and what has brought you to the world of tech startups in Alberta. But we always like to go back even a little further and hear a bit more about what was your childhood like, Alita? Where did you grow up and what brought you to Alberta if you're not originally from the province? No. Okay. Great question. So originally I'm from a small town in Alberta, Rocky Mountain House. So if anyone's familiar with heading out to the mountains, that's where I'm from. Um, grew up there. Uh, my mom was in uh, First Nations Health and was uh, a nurse out on a, in a couple of communities there. So that's how, and my dad was a teacher. So, you know, kind of spent lots of time in, you know, the human relationship type world there uh, with both my parents in service um, type jobs and then went to university to kind of follow in my mom's footsteps that's kind of where I thought I would end up working as well um, for history and philosophy and post-colonial studies and then fell into HR (laughs) so I kind of joke I'm an accidental HR person when I graduated from university there were no jobs in what I expected to work in and uh, so I just ended up in a job that said, hey, do you like to talk to people and build relationships? And that ended up being a tech recruitment type job. So the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, I'd like to unpack that a little more. How did that, how did that come up? How did a, a recruiting role come up after, uh, you know, different study? Yeah. So literally when I graduated, it was 2008, 2009. And in Alberta, there were very, very few jobs. Everything was 
you're kind of in a, a bit of dire straits there. And I thought I was going to work in government, in community health or community type work. And there was literally nothing. And so I was looking at, there was available on all kinds of job boards and things like that and found the, the job in tech and it was tech recruitment and, you know, interviewed there and had some conversations like the team and thought, well, I can do this. I am at that time, especially I was the least tech savvy person ever. I mean, I was still writing my essays on paper because I didn't trust printers and still don't, but that's another story. <laughs> but, you know, I, so I was a very not tech savvy person, but good at building relationships, good at building trust uh, and good at having conversations with people about what they really wanted. And so um, was, you know, recruitment came fairly naturally and, and ended up there for a couple of years before I went on to, to other organizations and kind of continued down that path. Great. Well, tell us a bit more about that path. So you start off as a recruiter. What you know brought you from there to where you are now with Cherry? Mm-hmm. So I, I I left the agency world to help build an internal recruitment team at Atco, and you know with with international operations and really really high numbers for recruitment. It was time to start bringing that recruitment in house. So joined that team to build out that entire function that didn't exist before. And, and, you know, I did all of the executive search at that time, and then started to own the diversity and inclusion strategies for for ACO structures and logistics and things like that. And, and really, we had some good success, we built some really strong programs and, and really enjoyed that. And then left that after a few years, and moved back to Edmonton, moved to Edmonton, which was an adventure and started my own business, and then was consulting. And I, I kind of fell in took a break from the corporate world and was was doing my own thing in a beauty business and then ended up, you know, with the women that I was talking to who were running their own companies or who, who were in leadership positions within companies, they kept, you know, they would talk about their day. And often it's, it's for most small businesses or growing businesses, one of the biggest challenges is HR and growth for recruitment and retention. You know, those are pretty, <laughs> pretty critical. And a lot of people don't have a ton of experience there when they've started their own businesses because they're subject matter experts in that space. And so I would, I would have these great conversations with people when they were, they were in my chair or when they were at the salon and they'd say, what, how do, you, how do you know about this? And I said, oh, well, my previous life was in this. And so they'd say, well, can you come and consult? And so I ended up doing that and it brought me eventually after a few years to Alberta Health Services, where I was working with them as a senior advisor to help um, you know, bring their talent acquisition strategies forward. And and bring some of the, the best practices from the outside world into AHS for physician and medical recruitment. And then left to join a company called Harvest Builders, where we were growing tech companies in the prairies, which is really exciting. Worked on Neo, worked on, you know, lots of other companies within the prairies helped support their growth. And then ended up joining Cherry Health. So I kind of joke that Cherry Health is the perfect um, spot for me after the really eccentric or eclectic <laughs> career path that I've had because I focus on, you know, we are Cherry Health, we focus on recruitment and helping to, to fill the, the, the gap between connecting medical professionals and the medical community with physicians who are looking for new jobs and want to practice and, and figure out a better way for them to, to find jobs that appeal to them and different types of work. So it has that recruitment element, it has the tech element, it has startup, it has all the things. So it was a, it was a really good mishmash of my experience to join Cherry. 
So that's that 15 years in a nutshell there. <laughs> you really hit that intersection of, of all of your experience and skills. So that's very exciting. And we'll, we'll talk maybe a bit more about Cherry Health and, and where the company's at momentarily, but maybe kind of digging back into that, that history uh, that you've had. I'm really curious uh, because diversity, equity, inclusion is obviously something everybody's talking about. How do we create more, um, you know, more inclusive practices and really embrace equity as per the theme of, of March 2023? And so I'm curious when you're at, at Co and you're starting to build out these programs or policies, whatever it looks like, was there extra training or where, how did, how did the programming come about? How did you build it? And how mm. might you relate that maybe to startups looking to build their own DE&I policies in their, in their smaller companies? Yeah, great question. I was fortunate. There was extra training and my, my previous education and degree and things like that had brought me along and I had quite a bit of awareness already and, and knowledge there, but building campaigns like, or building not campaigns, building programs like that within an organization. Um, ATCO was great in that they, they enabled me to take lots of training and, and had a lot of relationships with Mount Royal and other universities that, that were running different training programs. So I was able to take some training there before really jumping in and then worked with the community. There was the, the Calgary Recruitment Network and things like that. So there was, there was different uh, people that I leaned on as, while I was building that out as well. Um, yeah, and it was it was the time that Co had to do it. Working on federal programs or projects, you have to align with certain diversity and inclusion expectations from the government, and so they they had to focus on it as well. So, and I put up my hand because it was something that I was very passionate about, and so was able to kind of build it out. And it was it was great. It was a really fun experience. There was a lot of challenging and hard conversations and interesting conversations had during it. But it was pretty rewarding, pretty good time. And with all of that learning around proper um, practices around DE&I, how did that influence the rest of your work, both in HR and within partnerships throughout these various companies? Did it continue to influence your work, you know, throughout? And, and if so, how? Yeah, it definitely has. Um, I think one of the things that I learned through that, that training and that experience is that um, often people have unconscious bias. It's, it's not as if people genuinely or typically, I should say, typically people do not have ill will and are not you know, blatantly sexist and that kind of thing, trying to push women down or anything like that. You know, what comes to light is uh, sometimes naivety, sometimes some ignorance, sometimes, yeah, sometimes there are some bias that they know about and they're okay with. But a lot of it was bringing people along in a way that they could, through experience, through conversation and through building awareness, because a lot of people want to do better. And once they know better, they will. So yeah, I've, I've brought that forward in a lot of in every organization and project that I've done in the future of, because now that I know better, I should be doing better too. And so uh, yeah, I think a lot of organizations where I bring that experience have embraced it, some to larger degrees than others. Some understand it better and are already doing better as well. So yeah, no, it's, it's been pretty integral for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that people want to do better and, and when they know, you know, how and tools that they can, that they can help to do so they will. We're really experiencing that right now through a program we're running or an experience, we call it rainforest circles, where we're learning how to lead with, with candor and with empathy 
and transparency and generosity. And it's a really interesting experience because that we're all in these small circles building really deep trust within our circle group and the ability or the, the desire rather to want to do and be better as humans, but as leaders in our organizations or even the broader ecosystem. It's just so inspiring. Uh, who knows? Hopefully we'll be running more. And if you're listening, you'll be able to uh, become involved with that program. Uh, and I have seen, I would just add one more thing. I've yeah. seen that um, there is a shift in general society of, of being willing to learn now. I think some really clear examples of the, the history in Canada have come to light, you know, whether it's, you know, there's just so many things that have come to light that now it's harder to bury it. 15 years ago when I started this, people, it was a very different conversation than it is now. People didn't appreciate it in the general public, I don't think, in this country, the way that they're starting to now. Whether it's, you know, graves beside a school, you know, you can't ignore that type of thing anymore. So if you're not familiar with inequality and racism and, and you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Act in Canada now, you are probably living with your head under you know, <laughs> away from the general public versus 15 years ago, I think it was still um, more below the general radar. And so that has drastically changed the way that these conversations can be had as well. And people's willingness to have conversations and learn more versus kind of the, yeah, right, that I used to experience and encounter a lot 15 years ago. Mm, that's, that's positive. Yeah, really well said, right? Um, you, you, we, we certainly can't ignore it. And I that was a big part of our conversation on International Women's Day that spurred these podcasts on is we can't ignore it and we have to be having these conversations in order to move forward. I've spoken to women before in particular who say, you know, enough complaining, let's just start doing, let's start, you know, just, just, just changing things. And, and that's absolutely, I 100% agree with it. But I also believe that these conversations are not happening openly enough. And even the feedback we received from our initial conversation on this topic was, I can't believe this is still happening. I can't believe those experiences that were shared are still happening. And, and they are. And if we don't talk about it, we'll never, we'll never be able to, to learn how to change. Yeah. So on that note, um, can you share, you know, what has, what have been the most prominent gender-based biases that you have faced throughout your career? I have. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And there's there's one that's extremely, eh, there's a few that are extremely prominent. Being in HR, being in talent acquisition and recruitment as well. One is the the pay gap. There is no mm. if, ands, or buts that women do experience lower pay compared to their male counterparts. And there are multiple reasons for this. And I think it's not just Oh, well, you know, men don't want to pay women the same and that kind of thing. It's, it's not that simple. It's, it's much more complicated and there's a lot more things to it than that, even from, and I know we've talked about this before too, but the way that women put themselves forward in interviews by saying like, oh, yeah, I recently did a, did a, a recruitment job, like we were, we were recruiting internally at Cherry and the women put themselves forward um, $50,000 less on average. For this, and they were equally wow. qualified, and they were saying, you know, here's what I'm looking for, and then and the men were asking for minimum fifty thousand dollars more than than the average woman was asking for, and I think, you know, that was a little bit on me for the way that we posted it wasn't really prevalent, but for not having put a salary band in the job description, you know, um, but I think that 
the challenge with putting the, the, the salary band in the job description too, is that women self weed themselves out or people who think like, whoa, that's a huge pay jump from where I'm at right now. That this must, I must not be qualified for this. Women will opt out. Men will opt in. They'll say like, Ooh, I like this opportunity, you know? And so they'll jump in. Whereas women, you know, one of the biggest reasons why I don't put a ton of qualifications, I don't put a ton of, you know, must have, must have, must haves or like to have because, you know, men will look at that and say like, well, I've kind of done that close enough and they'll apply and good on them. Women typically will say like, oh, well, I've done seven out of 10. So no, I better not apply. You know, it's, it happens all the time. And I say like, you've, you've done a very similar thing. You've got the skills, you're fine. Um, but they they want to apply. And so I think, you know, um, and I coached every one of those women and said, no, 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 you're, you're way too low for your skills and experience. Here's the range you should be asking for. And please don't ask for less than that, you know? And, and so there's that, that's one part of it. There's also, you know, I've seen in many organizations, this is not a one-off, but where, you know, similar candidates will be being reviewed and the hiring party will automatically, you know, they'll look at, what do they say? Men get hired and promoted based on potential and women get hired and promoted based on merit. Right. So for a woman, you have to have done it, proven it, shown that you can do it. So you actually have to have done it for a period of time without getting the the benefits. And men, they're like, I think he could. So the women tend to not be given or offered. They'll say, oh, well, she hasn't done this and this. So let's offer her 80,000. Whereas the man, I mean, yeah, he's pretty much done that. So they will offer him the 100. Hmm. So I think, I don't know, there's so many aspects to this, but that is a, it's so, um, it's so prevalent that I, I think, you know, you just can't even argue with the numbers and it's not untrue. And in some areas, it's even worse than what the numbers show. And in some areas, it's not as bad. So I think, you know, that that's a big one. Um, and then in career progression through a company, I think we have seen time and time again that men have more champions within the organizations through informal relationships. Men have... Um, just a, uh, the, the challenges women face in moving forward in an organization seem to be greater. Right. Right. For multiple reasons as well. Yeah. And I believe, um, don't want to speak entirely for them, but Chic Geek has, has pivoted kind of, you know, their, their work around those women who are leaving roles mid-career because they don't see a path, you know, yeah. the top sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly, incredibly unfortunate. So within the world of recruitment and HR then, like I, I listen to you and I hear you talk about how you champion for these women who are asking for, you know, generally $50,000 less than their, the male, uh, in other male interviewees. Yep. Um, do you think it is common practice for recruiters to champion those women and to coach them to, to step up? No, no, no. You know, I can't say that for sure. I don't know. My experience talking to women is that they're shocked and grateful. So I'm assuming it's not happening all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there are different roles that recruiters play as well. When you are a um, professional recruiter and you're working on a fee, then it's in your best interest that that person be brought in at a higher salary. So they right. tend to do it um, also for themselves, but or also for that person. But, in, you know, there's there's multiple motivations there. In many organizations, when a person, when a recruiter is an internal recruiter and they can come forward and say, 
I found the person and it's going to save our budget XYZ amount. Mm. That's a win. Right. Absolutely. So it's not typically like most managers I've worked with and leaders that I've worked with don't understand the repercussion of bringing someone in below the salary band or below what the general scheme is making, like out of equity with that. And so they'll see it as a budget win. You know, it's like, oh, well, if we save 20 grand there, what could we do with that? You yeah, know, and exactly. I, I appreciate that. I mean, when you're running a budget and things are tight and you name it, like those little wins could be excellent. However, <laughs> that person is now within the organization and will likely never catch up because, you know, I don't know too many organizations that offer a 20% bump and then a 20% bump and then a 50% bump, things like that to get them back up to parity with the rest of the teams. Exactly. Um, when it comes, you know, based on their work performance or things like that, there's this, you know, there's, there are typically more standardized <laughs> uh, salary increases and things like that. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. And so one, you know, an aspect that organizations don't realize when they're doing this as well is that when that person joins, and so I try to bring back the cost of this type of activity to leaders, because if they can see the cost on the business, then often it'll help make better decisions. But it, when you bring someone in and you pay them below parity with the rest of the organization or without parity with the rest of the industry, they will get that experience. And if they're good, they will get recruited. Right, right. And whether they get recruited or they find a job somewhere else because they finally realize at the water cooler, like, holy crap, you're getting paid how much? <laughs> it always comes out. Um, then they will leave. And because you didn't pay that person in parity with the rest of the team, so just be, you didn't pay them what you're paying everyone else, you will lose them. And then the, and they'll let everyone else know as they're on their way. And everyone else will start to have these conversations and it be, cre creates an extremely toxic workplace. And I've seen it played out more times than I can count. And, and so I try to remind people of that when they see this like, ooh, opportunity for some cost savings. I try and remind them of the you know, unintended consequences and the future challenges that will probably surface when they make those types of decisions. And it helps a little bit. But, you know, again, this is the constant battle is, you know, what is the business case for equity is what everyone talks about. Right. And it's like, right. I don't know, don't be a sexist racist. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, yeah. I guess there's a business case for it. But my gosh, come on, yeah. you know, catch up. <laughs> yeah, catch up, right? And uh, I guess those who, who catch up will be ahead in the long run because the data is there. Um, the, you know, the better business outcomes have been proven time and time again. And I don't know if it will take a shift in generation and maybe that's a big assumption, but uh, in order for new, you know, business owners, C-suites, what, whatever, small, medium, large businesses to see the value um, will it be time? Will it be increased education? In your experience, uh, you know, how have those conversations gone with um, leadership teams where you're trying to make that business case generally? How has it gone? You know, I think having been in tech for a few years now, I would say that um, tech is an interesting space because because of the nature of being able to work remote, because of the nature of the tech industry, diversity has been more, you know, you look at an engineering team and often it is a bit more diverse. There is, there is a bit more diversity within that team. But I would say 
as a whole, when it comes to, you know, women in tech, it's not looking good. And it, if, if we're hoping for a shift because of um, people's, you know, a new generation, in my experience, that has not been the case enough. There are some phenomenal leaders in tech, and I can, you know, I can speak to the prairies uh, as one, but, you know, I, I, I can say, and I, I reference Vince at Stellar Algo. Excellent. Always thinking about it, aware, you know, and, and really values having diverse people on teams. I can think about um, just multiple organizations that, that, that do have founders who care about this. But I can also think of, and I won't name any, but I can think of quite a few organizations in this ecosystem as well. And the most of them are solidly male founder teams. They're solidly male leadership teams. And they hire women into HR and marketing. And they'll, you know, engineers, they'll hire anyone who's great because, hey, that's so competitive. <laughs> but the women are typically in more token roles and, or more uh, typical right. roles. I mean, not token, typical. And um, they're their place at the table is a bit different than, than a lot of their male counterparts. Right. And so I don't feel as though, and the women who get into those more leadership positions have done it through merit. Right. Again, through merit. Well, we know that person's a rock star. We'll bring her in, but they're not typically involved in the found. They're not typically part of founder teams. Often in my experience, it's, it's a more rare experience still. So uh, yeah, really interesting. And, um, we, we do, uh, our scorecard assessment every year and now measure, uh, DEI statistics alongside the measurement of the pillars and, and everything you're talking about, you know, our, our data proves and that various other reports out there in the ecosystem prove the lack of diversity, um, the lack of potential, potentially the lack of equity in, in, you know, certain people's lived experiences throughout the ecosystem. So it's nothing new. Um, no. And again, I, I guess I come to the, back to this question about what can, what can be done to shift the narrative, in your opinion? I think one thing that will shift this is the more, you know, within a tech ecosystem, we are very, very early, mm-hmm. and especially in the prairies, as a tech ecosystem. And what we've seen, what we see play out is that the more companies that have good results, exits, IPOs, et cetera, um, the more the people who worked within them at different stages decide that they want to take a bit more risk and a bit more risk. And a bit. So, you know, if maybe if you were in a company that, that had a great exit and you were, you know, you came on a few years in because you weren't really willing to come in when it was like really early and you were, you know, and it was still had very short runway and all that kind of stuff. Next time you take a little bit more risk and a little bit more risk and a little bit more risk. Um, you know, and, and so I think more women are seeing that and are participating there. So they are more willing to take more risk and they know other women or they know men that are willing to take those risks with them. And so we'll see more and more companies by female founders by nature of more experience in startups. Right. right? So we are all getting trained in this ecosystem together. And so that will increase how many women are in these positions because they're, they're willing to do it themselves or they've worked with the men who are going to do it and they already know each other. And so they, they do it together, which is great, which is great. Uh, I think if you don't even think about diversity and inclusion, or if you don't even think about equity within your organization early on, you will be trying to piece it later. And so for 
the founders building companies now, I am not saying you have to drastically take huge measures when you're a team of four, like yeah. slow down. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying you have to take these drastic measures at that stage, but start learning and start getting aware and start getting pretty clear on who's on your advisory board, who's in your network, who's, how do you want to do this as you do scale and grow to, to include that and to be aware of it so that when you do go from four to 10 to 20 to 50, you don't get to that 50 mark and realize like, whoa, because then it's going to be difficult. It's going to be more difficult to course correct. I say, you know, culture is really one of those things um, that early on you think you have it and you know it and oh, but there's 10 of you like, come on. Right. That's just your style at that point, <laughs> you know? And so, and if you don't put some parameters around it, as you grow, you lose it and getting culture, getting a certain culture back into your organization is more difficult than setting the stage and growing with it. And that, t- that culture can be whatever, you know, I'm not saying there's one that's perfect or not or whatever, but set it so that you actually grow with it instead of trying to course correct. And in, with that in mind, I think they can start making better hiring plans and making better hires and make sure that they're promoting people, make sure they're doing things along that way right. that, will, that will lead to better outcomes as an organization. Let's talk more tactically then. So I'm a startup, you know, I only have four people on our team. We want to start thinking about this stuff, but A, we probably don't have the resources. B, we probably don't have this expertise. You rarely see someone with HR background as an early stage employee that that I've seen. Maybe it happens. What are some tactical ways in which startup teams can start to look at this earlier and start thinking about best practices and how they would be deployed when the time comes or, or how to even start seeding them early? Yeah. So if you have the money, there are some great agencies and stuff who can support on this front. Um, I'm terrible with names of things, so I can't remember right off the top of my head, but there are some really good ones. <laughs> they do exist. And so, and I, I have them in my network and it's really easy for me to pull them up, but I don't have them at the top of my t- tip of my tongue. But there are some agencies who can help really, really well with this that are really run by the people who know this stuff, not by, I'm not saying go to like, one of the big agent, the big firms mm-hmm. to think about your DNI. First of all, the cost will be outrageous. Right. Second, you don't really know they're putting it out of the box canned program in place for you. And it typically is like, well, so go to the people who really understand how to do this. Get aware, um, understand what kind of networking groups, what kind of groups are available if you don't know this stuff. And, you know, I think, think about your advisory group thoughtfully. Um. And is there an advisor that you could bring in who is going to help with this? Because I will say, um, most of the VCs and investors at early stages, when you say you're going to use this capital to grow and expand and hire, they say, okay, do you know how you're going to do that? Right. And, and is a, it is a strength for your organization and for you in fundraising and in those next steps to have someone in your pocket and in your network who can help you there. And who has, and so bring those people who into your network, into your advisory group, who actually have some depth when it comes to diversity and inclusion and, you know, hiring with purpose like that and building culture and building, uh, you know, expectations within an organization and all this kind of, kind of stuff. Like right. find that person. Don't just find someone who's like, oh yeah, I know how to hire people. And I did it for this company and we hired 200 people and blah, blah, blah. Okay. But did you do it strategically? Did you do it thoughtfully? Did you do it with 
you know, this type of impact? Maybe, maybe not. But find the people who have and get them, if you don't have the money to spend on a person internally who's going to do this for you, get an advisor, give them a little equity, like bring them into the mix and have them providing you insights on, you know, they can also look at your product and say like, hey, you got a blind spot here, like all kinds of things from that lens. And so that perspective can be invaluable as you're building an organization, because I highly doubt your audience that's going to be purchasing your product, you know, buying your tool, et cetera, is exactly like you Mm -hmm. probably have diversity within their teams, et cetera. And so being aware of that, you know, do you mirror your audience and actually do you understand your audience? They can bring some of the insight too. So find someone from either hire someone or find an advisor or find an agency that can help you with this or a consultant that can help you with this that truly knows what they're doing. Right. And has some lived experience. Yeah. Yeah. Lived experience is so important. That's incredible advice. Cherry Health is lucky to have you on their team. So maybe let's go that direction a little bit. How are things at Cherry Health? Where is the company at? What can you share with us today about about the happenings at Cherry? Yeah. Um, Well, I'm lucky to have them also. When I was evaluating where I wanted to go, the most important thing for me was alignment with the founder team. Right. That and that they also believed in this stuff and saw value in building diverse teams and diverse ways of thinking and, you know, appreciating people as the individuals that they are. Um, and, and I saw that within the leadership team. And so, and they wanted, then they knew that I had this experience and they wanted to focus on this as we grow as well. And they were already mindful of it. Uh, so it was, it was great joining Cherry for that. You know, it was one of the driving reasons that I decided to join. Um, the, where we are today. So we're growing really quickly. What Cherry is medical network. So you can kind of think about it as a LinkedIn specifically for the medical community. So if you've ever tried to recruit a physician or nurse practitioner, you name it, you know that they aren't on LinkedIn. They aren't in these other general places and they're really, really hard to get to connect with. And we wanted to solve the problem. Jordan, one of our co-founders is a physician. And when he was early in practice, he was locuming, which is temp doctoring. And and realized how disjointed it was to be connected with the physicians who desperately needed a break. They needed to yeah. take a map. They needed to, you know, practice some self-care because they were it was early COVID, right? right. People needed oh, time God. off. Yeah. And they couldn't get it. And and there was weeks where Jordan was sitting between jobs, which is crazy. So yes, we have a physician yeah. shortage, <laughs> but we also have a physician optimization, you know, workforce optimization issue. So it was originally built out of the opportunity. I joke it was so that Jordan could have really great deal flow for his next locum jobs. But in fact, it was (laughs) so that those two groups could connect physicians on the side needing the support and physicians looking for different types of opportunities. Um, And it grew from there. Now we have permanent jobs, locum jobs, contract, consulting, all kinds of things. If you want to be a physician who consults to startups (laughs) in the health space and they, they need a physician, maybe a specialist, maybe a general physician, like we really want to make sure that physicians can build careers that are great for them and so that they last longer, that they're, they're happier, they're more balanced and all these kinds of things too. So um, it's been really fun. And it's, we have thousands of physicians on the platform. We have great. 1500 organizations already using it within these two and a bit years. We've got working with governments, we're working with all kinds of things. So it's been, it's growing really, really quickly and it's exciting. And yeah, it's a good time. Yeah. That's- when you're working with people who are, are genuinely interested in each other and generally, you know, appreciate each other's efforts. It's a really good time. 
and a problem <laughs> like the problem you know has effects on all of us with you know the system being what it is today so hooray Happy. for cherry health so you're head of partnerships and engagements there and i know um had you worked in partnerships before or sorry partnerships and engagements was with harvest and now growth in partnerships That's right. so growth leads me to think more around kind of like business development marketing you're wearing like are you just wearing all of the hats in the world <laughs> yeah. many hats yeah. many hats a full of hats but yeah, so really, I focus on all things revenue and, okay. and how we're building those strategic partnerships and, and generating revenue for the organization in different revenue streams. I also, the partnership side is with Jordan, who's the physician. He's really, you know, working on a lot of the partnerships as well. But I'm working with governments. I'm working with large organizations that, that need lots and lots of doctors. So all those strategic partnerships. And then, and growth also, I mean, it's a great term because it can encompass anything we want, right. but people growth too, and growth within the yeah. team. So obviously I, I kind of focus on the team building and internal strategies for growth. Uh, and then, yeah, so it's, I don't know, it's a, it's a fun, I've done partnerships in many previous roles, whether it was way back to Atco or at Harvest and same with the revenue stuff at Harvest and, and building those those revenue streams and stuff there too. And being a consultant, you know, right. you kind of have to do that as well. So yeah, it's a good, it's like I said, it's a good mishmash of my background, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Not sounds like a perfect fit. Well, it's great to hear. It's good to hear everything happening with Cherry Health. Are you, are you all across the country now? Like these thousands we of are. physicians across yeah. Canada? Yeah, across the country. We're even, we've got a couple of roles up in the Yukon. We've got roles mm. in P. I, you name it, there's, there's positions starting to come onto the platform across all of Canada, which is super exciting. And I don't know for your audience, we're also going through a little raise right now. So if you're interested, <laughs> you can be participating with Cherry. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know, it's a really good time. And, it's, and we'll be in Quebec City in a couple of weeks to meet with physicians out there. I'm going to Toronto nonstop. I'm pretty much living in Toronto in May because that's where all the physician conferences are then. And right. yeah, just getting our getting the brand and the name out there now that COVID has passed and we can actually meet people in person and go to these nice big conferences and stuff again. It's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great to be in person again. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, thanks so much for sharing, Alita. Maybe we'll wrap things up to kind of tie all of the, all everything we've discussed maybe back together. You know, if there was one hope for the future of tech innovation in Alberta, one hope, one wish, one magical wand casting. What what would that be for you? Where would you like to see our ecosystem go and flourish, and in what ways in the coming years? Hmm, that's a big question. Mm -hmm. um, I think for the tech ecosystem, I'd like to see more women founding companies and leading and on leadership teams. More women on the VC side mm -hmm. as analysts, as you know, in every level on the VC side, because I think that will have a profound impact on some of the gaps that we're currently currently seeing as well in terms of investment in female-led or diverse founder teams. Uh, and that those who are currently leading startups start taking this seriously and understand the positive impact that diversity within their true leadership team and at the table, not anecdotally within our organization, we have lots of women, great, mm -hmm. um, the table uh, and, and hearing their voices and, and allowing them to, to have an impact on your business. Because in the end, it typically, as we've said, does have really, really good results. So and I think people 
like to say, I just hire the best candidate for the job. Right. And that's, I don't disagree with that. I agree with that. But maybe think about the parameters of what you identify as best for the job. Mm -hmm. And is hiring more same, same best for the job or is maybe training a little bit of skill, but having a diverse thinking process and a diverse style and a diverse, you know, person at the table. Is that also really high in merit? Mm-hmm. So redefine what does I hire the person who's best for the job mean so that that actually is a little bit more encompassing and can have a broader impact other than the specific job duties. I love that. Um, great, um, great advice. Great, like, you know, tact, ta- tactical advice that uh, startup founders can use today. And, you know, invite, invite more women at the table and women, you know, create your own tables. (laughs) Let's create more of our own tables too. Yeah. Yeah. And when going into these job interviews, when you are presenting yourself, reach out to other women who have been in that role, find out what it's really paying in that industry and, and come in guns blazing a little bit. Like, you know, you, you might have to ask, it's okay to ask for a big bump from what you were previously making. And it's not okay for them to say like, well, what are you making today? It doesn't matter what you were making in your previous job. That's none of their business. <laughs> it's a really good point. And the organization matters. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe you were making 40 grand, you know, making coffees. If this role pays 120, that's none of their beesmax. Right. You know, so it's just know the, know the salary bands, know what you're worth and, and, and kind of go in with your, best foot forward. And if that means getting a bit of coaching, I highly recommend that prior to going down this path because women, I think maybe sometimes need a little coaching in terms of presenting themselves effectively as well. Yeah, that's another really good tip. Do you think that women, um, you know, they'll, I have thought this myself, if I ask for too much, they will just turn me down. And because I had done the research that this particular role doesn't actually pay what what I want and know I'm worth, and then just self-selected out because of that, or, you know, just feared that that number scared them all away. If it scares them away, it scares them away. Right. Good riddance. And it's not the role for you. <laughs> Good point. You Thank know, you. I think here's the opportunity, like present what you're worth and, and be able to back it up. Don't, you know, first year out of college, please don't ask for 130K. Like, woo, you know, but. If, if, if that is the right number for the industry, for your skills and experience, be confident, say why you're worth it. And they might have to say like, whoa, we weren't planning on that for this role. But you know what? You're right. And your skills do surpass what we were planning. Let me get back to you. Or they'll say like, whoa, oh gosh, we don't have the budget right now. Maybe when a more senior role opens up, blah, blah, blah. Or right. they'll say, absolutely not. You know, there's, there's a lot of ways it can go. But do you want that job if they're going to pay you drastically less? Because I can, say, especially in the startup world, I mean, in the startup world, you may take a little bit of a decrease or, I mean, I look at what some of my peers right. are making out there in the world and I'm like, eh. but it's worth it for me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but I know why I'm doing it and we're all doing it and we're in it together and I can, and it's still enough salary for me to be comfortable and live my life, you know, totally. but in it together. And, and when we talked about salary, it was with transparency of why that number is what it was. Right. Transparency. So, you know, I think ask for a salary. You don't have to say it first. If they really like you and you say, no, I really want to know what the range is for this, for this role, because you're a novel industry or you're in the startup world. And I know your salaries are different. What do you want to pay? 
Right. I don't need to stay first. So there's lots of different ways to have that conversation. But in the end, if you sign up for a job and they want to pay you 50K less than what you knew you're worth, you're not going to last. You're not going to be happy when they ask, when you need to work some overtime because it's startup world and hey, like we all have to do. Exactly. You're going to get choked. Yeah. You know, and so I don't think money is the ultimate driver, but I also know that money is important. Absolutely. And for women, often we are running a household, we have dependents, we have all this stuff going on as well. Um, you don't, it's okay to make good money. It's great. Yeah. Nothing wrong. Yeah, nothing wrong with it. And I hope in the end, it all, you know, the sacrifices you make for lower salaries in the startup world pay off. 10 times over, fingers crossed. <laughs> and it sounds like Cherry Health is off to some great growth. So yeah, and luck. at least you're going to be along the way and you better be working with people that you really jive with. Yeah. If you're going to make those you know, monetary sacrifices, then it's all worth it. But yeah, ask for what you're worth. Right. Great way to end it. Thank you so much, Alita. For some of the things we referenced in the show, we'll throw those in the show notes and we will see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was brought to you by New Idea Machine. Going beyond creating custom software solutions, NIM is dedicated to making a positive impact on society, providing opportunities for new software developers to gain real-world experience and contribute to meaningful projects. You get quality, affordable solutions at the same time you're supporting the growth and development of the next generation of skilled talent. Visit newideamachine.com for more info. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>